0: Now, we're glad you're here, and again, welcome. Always glad to see faces that we know and ones that we don't. We, we wrapped up a series last week, on a, a book of the Old Testament, the fourth book of the Old Testament, Numbers. We wrapped that up last Sunday, and we're going to start a new series next Sunday. So this morning is kind of a one-off. And we're going to look at really a, a string of passages there, and it, it would probably just be easier to follow in the bulletin. It's hard to call them all out. So maybe just follow in the bulletin. These are mostly from what are called the wisdom books in the Bible. That, that would be books like Proverbs and some of the Psalms. Uh, Job is a wisdom book. Well will mostly be from Proverbs. But when, uh, when I graduated from college, I went to work with a friend of mine. He had been my campus minister in the campus ministry that I was involved in when I was in college. It's RUF, and we're still... Supportive of that ministry and uh, stands for Reformed University Fellowship. That's our denomination's campus ministry, and I had been involved as a student. So then, when I graduated, I, I went to work with Ruf at this new work at Vanderbilt, and the guy who had been my campus minister at Mississippi State started that work. So our ministry was considered part of the chaplain's office. And one of the cool things about being at a place like Vanderbilt is, interesting people come through there and thinkers and politicians and leaders and all that. So. Uh, One day, Harold Bloom was on campus. Harold Bloom was, and I think still is in his 80s, an emeritus professor at Yale and uh, a humanities professor. A few years before that, he had come out with a book that made some splash called The Closing of the American Mind. The Closing of the American Mind. So Harold Bloom had lunch with the chaplains. And I remember this thing that he brought up, and I'd, I'd never heard anyone say this before. He said that when you read the writings of of the people who really started this country. When you read their letters, when you read their journals, when you read their published writings, when you read the Federalist Papers, there's this phrase that you hit over and over and over, and it was a big deal in the founding of America. And the phrase is, the common good. And he contrasted that with what we default to. Now, this was 1990. I don't know what he would say now that when we talk about uh, ourselves as Americans we default to individual rights but the people who are animated by the common good the collective good were the ones who started this country so you, there's this disparity between that's all through their writings and you don't hear much about it anymore in the way that we do life there's something that's like that in really in the bible as a whole but especially in the wisdom Literature of the Bible. And when I say literature, don't hear fiction. I just mean it's a genre. But it's this phrase that's all through the Bible. And it doesn't just say it's a good thing. I mean, it will say things like, it's how you have life. It's how you have joy. And the big one is, it's how you have wisdom. And we talked about wisdom recently, but let me, let me define that again. Biblically speaking, wisdom is not just intelligence or cleverness, or or, or just uh, data collection about your your field of expertise. It's competence about how to do life, real life. It's competence about how to navigate the complexities of life. Life is hard, and we're complex. The ability to navigate that is wisdom. What I want to look at this morning is this thing that it keeps being celebrated in God's Word... It's something that's absolutely indispensable for wisdom, and it's not something that we talk about a lot. So let's look at this. Let me just read these first three passages, and we'll pick up the others as we go. So let's begin in Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Proverbs nine ten: The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. From Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. This is God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, as we're coming together as worshipers this morning, and if not worshipers, if we're coming as uh, those who are curious or seeking about you and your word, we would also say that we come as people who we feel our lack of wisdom. We may not use that wording, but we, we feel that we don't know what to do moment to moment. We feel like we don't know how to un- untie a knot that's in our lives. And, and we need it. We need wisdom. We need to hear you. So please help us. Please take away the thing or the feeling or the, or the stress. That, that distracts us and obstructs us from hearing you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a, an article that came out earlier this year in The Atlantic, and the name of this article is Eating Toward Immortality. Eating Toward Immortality. And the little subtitle says, Diet Culture is Just Another Way of Dealing with the Fear of Death. Right. Here's, here's what it says. First off, the writer cites an earlier writer named uh, Ernest Becker. And Ernest Becker wrote a, a famous book called The Denial of Death. In his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker hypothesized that the fear of death and the need to suppress that fear is what drives much of human behavior. This idea went on in social psychology to form the basis of terror management theory. I'd never heard that term before, terror management theory. So this writer, as, as she's writing about food, she frames the article in terms of we do a lot of what we do because we're afraid to die. All right, so if that's the case, how, how does that manifest itself with the way that we approach food and eating? And she says, all right, one thing that we do is because of the, there's so many different things you can eat, and there's so much different advice about what to eat, we find a guru, or a program, or a website, or an approach, or, or whatever. All right, here's what she says. People willingly, happily hand over their freedom in exchange for the bondage of a diet. Boy, let that phrase wash over you. Bondage of a diet that forbids their most cherished foods that forces them to rely on the unfamiliar, unpalatable or inaccessible, all for the promise of relief from choice and the attendant responsibility. If you are free to choose, you can be blamed for anything that happens to you. Weight gain, illness, aging, in short, your share in the human condition. Now you understand what she's saying? That like if if someone else is telling me what to do and I align with them, then I can't be held at fault for Uh, what my body is doing as a result of what I eat, because I'm following a a guru, even if I don't use that word. And get this last part. This is why arguments about diet get so vicious so quickly. You are not merely disputing facts. You are pitting your wild gamble to avoid death against someone else's. You are poking at their life raft. But if their diet proves to be the one true diet, capital O, capital T, capital D, yours must not be. If they are right, you are wrong. This is why diet culture seems so religious. People adhere to a dietary faith in the hope they will be saved. That if they're good enough, pure enough in their eating, they can keep illness and mortality at bay in the pursuit of life everlasting always requires a leap of faith. This is from the Atlantic. It's an article about food. It sounds like a theology article. Um, the theme I'm hearing here is we do a lot of what we do because of our fear. In this particular case, our fear of dying. And something that we've said in here quite, quite a bit, and if you've been around here, you, you probably have heard us say this, that we do what we do. Because we love what we love. We do what we do because we love what we love. It may also be true to say we do what we do because we fear what we fear. And even though you and I may not think of ourselves as people who walk around afraid all the time, just think about sort of the building blocks of what our life circumstances look like work, or unemployment, or seeking work, or getting pregnant. Or not being able to get pregnant. Or having young children and wondering how they'll turn out. Or having older children and being frightened by how they're turning out. And I'm not joking. Or my health. Or my lack of health. Or my singleness. Or my marriage. Or my divorce. Or the money I have or the money I don't like, there is just fear all through that. And we're making decisions, we're responding to things from that fear, or from those fears. And this other thing that we find ourselves saying, I think I said this, if not last week, the week before, I think it was last week, that the amazing thing about the scriptures is, they don't come along and say, "All right, now do this thing that you've never done before. In other words, when the Bible says we need to meditate on God and His Word, we need to think about it and marinate in it until it affects our insides. That's not a new activity for human beings. Everybody in here meditates. We just meditate on other things. When you worry, you're meditating. You're fixating on something and churning about it until it affects your insides. That's meditation. We show up knowing how to do that. Uh, Actually, it was last week. We talked about uh, God in His Word says that you need to live by my promises. You need to live according to these promises. To us, that sounds like, okay, wow, that's a new concept for me. I'm going to live by promises. We live by promises all the time. The world is making us promises. The culture is making us promises. We're making ourselves promises. We showed up doing that. And so what does God's word say? It doesn't say, hey, for the first time in your life, meditate. It says reorder how you meditate. It's not for the first time in your life, live by promises. It's reorder the promises that you live by. In a similar way, this morning, here's what we're looking at. It's not God's word saying, hey, for the very first time in your life, live by your fears. We're doing that. God's word is saying this there is a fear that unlike all the other fears you have is life-giving. These other fears will wear you out. And ultimately they're destructive to you body and soul. But there is a your heart has to fear something or someone. There's a fear that will put life in you. And it's the fear of the Lord. And again, this is not something that shows up maybe in this little handful of verses that I was able to just somehow cobble together. It's just all through the Bible. So I want to to look at this this morning. Um, This is kind of Fear of the Lord 101. So let's ask a few questions. First off, what is it? What what is the fear of the Lord? How does it affect us? What does it do to people? What does it provide? And then uh, where do we get it? If it's so important, where do we get it? So first off, what is it? Let me uh, let me try to define it. Because fear is such a negative word, let me try a different word. Fear is a good word in the Bible too, but I, it may not land with us. So let me try another word: all. Not a word that we use a lot, but all. When uh, when everybody you know everybody had to ramp up for the eclipse, and then we had to have post-eclipse debriefings with one another. What do you think of the eclipse? Here's what I thought about the eclipse. How did you respond to the eclipse? But I did find a word, I found myself using a word that I don't use a lot. I did use the word awe. That It was awe-inspiring. Now, what, what is awe? awe let, me, let me state it negatively. Awe is not the feeling you get when you look at table rock or Caesar's head. that huge, beautiful... We're so blessed to have that close by. But that's more what uh, an older generation would have called sublime. Awe is when you see a tornado lift a barn up and destroy it. Awe is when you see lightning strike someone and kill them. Awe is the feeling of, I am in the presence. I have just witnessed such power that I can't get my mind around it. Like my, my mouth fell open and I didn't know that happened. That's all. And one writer named Jerry Bridges, he wrote a book about the fear of God. Here's, here's what he says. A profound sense of awe toward God is undoubtedly the dominant element in the attitude or set of emotions that the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Let me read that again. A profound sense of awe toward God is undoubtedly the dominant element in the attitude or set of emotions that the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. All right, so w- w- when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, what does it say about it? Like, what is it? What's its character? couple of things. Number one, it's foundational. And I, and I hope you heard this from those first two verses. It's why I wanted to read them first. There's a psalm that says this. Proverbs say this. Job says this. Ecclesiastes says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of that competence about how to navigate life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, when you say beginning, we need to to make sure we're on the same page about what we mean by beginning. Because beginning can be on a horizontal axis... In beginning, can be on a vertical axis. For instance, if we were talking about Greenville and its history and its beginnings, we could talk about this area was Cherokee hunting grounds, and then some uh, early white settlers established businesses beside the Reedy River, and that was the beginnings of this town called Greenville. And that's true, but when we say it that way, we moved on. Those people are gone, and those buildings are gone. That was the beginning. That's horizontal. This is vertical. This is the trunk of the tree. In other in other words, whatever wisdom tree you have in your life, whatever growth it experiences, whatever fruits grow on that tree, the trunk, the bottom of the trunk of the tree is the fear of the Lord. It's the soil on which Greenville sits. To use that metaphor. So it's foundational, and the other thing is this: is I'm going to use the word it's invasive. It, it gets into everything. Now, usually when we use the word invasive, we mean plants that we don't want. I found yet another patch of English ivy in my backyard yesterday that I thought I had completely dispatched. English ivy is invasive. Dillweed invasive. Invasive is something that gets into everything. The fear of the Lord is to touch. Every aspect of your life. And by the way, we already have fears that are doing that. Like if you fear being alone, or if you fear running out of money, and there are people that don't have money that fear running out of money, and there are people who do have lots of money, and they fear running out of it. If you have those fears, it touches everything. Look back at Deuteronomy 10. Just listen to how the fear gets into everything. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God, keep the commandment. In other words, just your whole life, like how you feel, and that you love Him, but you obey Him. You know, like the language of service or keeping the commandments, it means you, you build your, your identity and your priorities and your schedule around that person. You serve him. Because fear gets into everything. Uh, I mean, one fear I had that kind of is something like this. When I was in college, I got salmonella. And I got it when I was served turkey that was supposed to have cooked all night on low heat for Thanksgiving. And unbeknownst to us, the power went out in the middle of the night, and then came back on. And uh, so that the exterior of the turkey was cooked and looked like a cooked turkey, but, the, but I must have gotten an inside cut. And I got salmonella. If you've never had salmonella, don't ever get salmonella. <laughs> and, then had, and then I had to fly with salmonella, which is a, a subset of the salmonella population. Okay, from that time forward... If I eat chicken or any salmonella-ish thing, and it has a little bit of pink in it, if, if I have the ability to do that, I'm walking it to a microwave and putting it on high for like five minutes. <laughs> hey, it's tough now. Hey, I don't care. I'm never getting salmonella again. <laughs> Fairly standard uh, deal for me. If you serve me something like chicken, there's one little pink spot is that Brian will eat this buffer zone around the pink. <laughs> That's the salmonella buffer zone. Because... I am afraid of getting it again. It was awful. And it has affected how I eat the rest of my life. The fear of the Lord, it it touches everything. Like it's something that gets into a businessman on a trip, in a hotel room, behind closed doors, unseen, with no accountability. It gets in that. It, It gets in... The way we talk, it gets in vocabulary. It gets into money. Foundational, invasive, central. All right. So, what, so how does it affect us? I kind of touched on that, but how does it affect us? And the Bible says so much about this theme that it's hard to boil it down. So let me just do two. The first one is this, is what I would call wise self-awareness. Wise self-awareness. Look Under Deuteronomy, look at the next two verses. Proverbs 3, 7. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. And it's really interesting because you you see more and more where the, the advice is given, hey, trust your gut. Trust your instincts. Now, there's there's a sense in which that is true. You know Malcolm Gladwell, if you know who that is, he's written about the ten thousand hour rule. If you've if you've spent, I don't know if he means exactly, but if you spend ten thousand hours doing something, working in a field, then you've kind of earned the right to to have good instincts and to act on those good instincts. You know, like a law enforcement officer can look at a parking lot and see things that we don't see because they they. They do it all day, every day. They've earned the right to do that. That, That's good. But the problem is when, if you've got expertise in one area, that you start to think that, you know what, I'm pretty insightful just kind of across the board. Like, have you ever gone with your gut about something and it went terrible? Yeah, we all have. And so you've got this contrast between being wise in one's own eyes versus the fear of the Lord, the posture of somebody Coming to God with empty hands saying, I I don't know what to do here. I, I, I have an idea, but I don't know what to do here. Or I don't understand myself right now. Have you ever said that to God? I don't understand myself right now. How about this next one? Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor, if I am in awe of God, that He is a consuming fire, the angels are not pure enough to look at Him without covering their eyes, if He's that great, that should highlight that I'm not. And that affects my bearing about life. Is what that's what the Bible would call like realistic self awareness? Okay, so the fear of the Lord brings self awareness, but it also brings something else. I, I'm going to call this personal renewal, profound personal renewal. Look at the next few passages. Look at uh, Proverbs three eight. It now that means the fear of the Lord. It will be healing to your flesh, and refreshment to your bones. I mean, just that metaphor. Healing on my insides. Refreshment on my insides. Look at the next one. Proverbs nineteen twenty three. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. How often do you hear anyone say, I'm, I'm just really satisfied? Almost never. I was once in a restaurant... In Jackson, Mississippi, a little downtown restaurant owned by Greek owners. And I don't know if he's the first or second generation owner, but it's an old Greek man. He's gone now. Fought in World War II, part owner, wipes down the tables, seats people. Just kind of that's how that generation did it. And I remember one time when I was with a friend, I was paying a bill, and we were talking with him. He said, I have everything I ever wanted. And I thought, I have never heard a human being say that. I have everything I've ever wanted. Satisfaction, fullness. And you've got, you've got the proverb saying, the person who fears the Lord experiences core satisfaction. Look at this next one. 22.4. Uh, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. It's like all the stuff we say we want comes from the fear of the Lord. Riches and honor and life. Now, let's contrast this. Let's contrast the the language we've heard. Refreshment, satisfaction, uh, riches, honor, life. Let's contrast that with overcommitment and exhaustion, which is most of our lives. And we we all have our own personalities so we all bring our our different things to the mix. But but everybody could tell their story about I say yes too much and I don't say no and I'm doing all this stuff and sometimes I don't even know why I'm doing it and it absolutely wears me out and it grinds me and I don't have the gaps or the margins to just be or feel or think. Now the term that we've come up with for what drives that, that kind of incessant activity. But here's the term we did not come up with. We don't call it LOKU, L-O-K-U, love of keeping up. <clears throat> I invented that term. <laughs> and I think it could have caught on because if Roku can be TV, LOKU could be our way of talking about love of keeping up. But we don't call it love of keeping up. We call it FOMO. And the F stands for, <clears throat> excuse me, fear. It is aptly named. The fear of missing out. Like, I fear fear it so much that I just don't stop. And fears might be a little bit different. I might fear missing out because I am sad. Or I am lonely. Or I fear that I will be ignored. I will not be included. I fear that I will not be seen. You ever wondered if people actually see you? All these people around you, but does anybody really see you? And we go, and we go, and we go, (coughs) excuse me, and we don't have life, (coughs) pardon me, and we don't have satisfaction. And we go. The fear of the Lord is something that's to impart life. You know, we could go on and on and on about the contrast with good fear and bad fear. Think about what we call codependence. What is codependence? It's where you've got a relationship and you've got two people and in this sort of bad broth, bad formula... They need each other. Maybe one needs to be the rescuer and one needs to be rescued. One needs the other one not to be lonely. One needs to be the nurturer and the carer, the rescuer, whatever. And they fear. They fear what if that person wasn't there. Thank you, Bill Kane. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, Beware of building your life around any other person, even a spouse, because people have this knack of dying. If you can't live without someone, then what do you do if you don't have them? We do what we do because we fear what we fear. So where do you get it? And at this last passage I want to read is, from, is toward the end of Proverbs. It's not one that is ascribed to Solomon. Solomon says at the beginning that he, he collected these Proverbs. So here's something of, of, that he, he cites from another source. And here's what he gives. The words of Agur, son of Jachai, the oracle. The man declares... I am weary, O oh God. I am weary, O oh God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. Somebody right now is going, this is my new favorite passage. <laughs> I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Now hit the pause button. This is late in the book of Proverbs. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, all this stuff that you've been reading about, knowledge of the Holy One fear of the Lord, knowledge of God, wisdom for how to live life, I don't have it. And I am weary. Alright? So what does he say next? Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. It's very interesting to look at that passage through the lens of the New Testament. In round numbers, that comes to us at about 1,000 B.C., give or take 1,000 B.C. And 1,000 years later, there's a man sitting with a Jewish religious leader. And this is actually the second time this has come up recently. I referred to this a couple of weeks ago. That this man was sitting with a Jewish religious leader. We were looking at Numbers, this passage about the bronze serpent. This man quotes from Numbers about the bronze, he refers to the bronze serpent. But right before he did that, he says this. Jesus says in John 3.13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. The Son of Man. And because we tend to be not very knowledgeable about the Old Testament, we probably wouldn't catch the connection. I can almost guarantee you a Pharisee would. That Jesus just said to him, the only one who's actually done what Agur wrote about to be able to descend from heaven because he ascended to heaven, because he came from heaven, is the Son of Man. And who is the Son of Man? Is Jesus himself. That the only way you're going to know what God is really like is if you know me. Now, where your mind might go when you hear that is to picture, and and I said this at the 830 service, I kind of try not to picture Jesus when I'm thinking about him or talking to him or teaching about him, but I do. I cannot get those vacation Bible school pictures out of my head. So it's their fault. But the way I usually picture him is as he's presented in the gospel. So I picture something like a first century Jewish peasant. Is that what Jesus looks like now? You know, even, in the, even if we only had the gospels, we would know that that can't be it. Because every once in a while... The curtain would be peeled back a little bit as to who he is. The Mount of Transfiguration, these eyewitnesses, Peter, James, and John, are there with him, and they said, for just a little bit, out of nowhere, unscheduled, our Jesus shone like the sun. And boy, we're in the perfect position to talk about that comparison after the eclipse. What was the mantra leading up to the eclipse? Don't look at the sun! Don't look at the sun! It's too much. Do not look at the sun. It'll damage you. Don't look at the sun. Well, they lived under the same sun. They said, he shone like the sun. And then it stopped. But then you get to the book of Revelation. And how does it start? The apostle John, he's an old man now. He says, I saw Jesus. I saw the risen Christ. Now, John loved Jesus. Jesus loved John. It says that the night the Lord's Supper was instituted, that John had his head on Jesus' breast. I have no friend with whom I will do that. And I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just saying, I'm not there. But in that cultural setting, this warmth and friendship and closeness between John and Jesus, the man. Okay, same John, book of Revelation. He sees his beloved Jesus and it terrifies him because he shines like the sun. And John says, I saw him and I fell over as if a dead man. Is that where the passage ends? No, it says that Jesus goes over to him and puts his hand on him and says, fear not. Well, which is it? You're fearful. Do I fear you or not fear you? Yes. Did you catch that in the New Testament reading that Jake read from earlier in the service? Jesus comes along and says, Hey, don't fear people. All they can do is kill you. Fear the one that after he kills you can throw you body and soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And he takes care of the birds. You're worth so much more than birds. So fear not. Which is it? Yes, fear Him. But fear the God who can allow you to say, fear not. Let me, let me read you something from the New Testament. We've been so much in the Old Testament. And this might sound like I'm reading from the Old Testament, but this is the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12 is talking about what we're doing right now. Worship. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. One application of the fear of the Lord is that sometimes we need to look up and say, what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings, this is not ultimately about us, or how I felt about it, or whether I liked the sermon, or whether my children liked it. We want anyone who comes to find benefit here, but we do not ultimately do it unto ourselves or unto each other. The worship is unto the Lord. With awe, because we fear Him. But you've been telling us He forgives us our sins. Why should I fear Him if He forgives us our sins? You know what it says in Psalms? Lord, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. To really understand the gospel, to really understand who Jesus is, who came to secure my salvation, should give us all. That God cannot just wave us into his presence. He cannot just wave us into heaven. Because he cannot stop being just. He won't. If he stopped being just, he would stop being God. But he wants us to be with him. He wants us to be overwhelmed with his love and his joy and his light. So what does he do? He pours out the justice that we deserve on his son. Isaiah says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. That's why it's good to hear the old spiritual. It talks about the crucifixion. It says, sometimes it causes me to tremble, to tremble, to tremble. The gospel breeds, when the spirit works, good fear. And like the hymn said, and then relieves our fears. Secondly, I mean, it should affect our worship. Second, it should affect how we think about ourselves, diagnostics. Boy, this, this is, I don't know which community groups will meet this week and which one, ones won't, but what a ripe topic for discussion. Where in my life am I doing something that's out of accord with who I say I am? What, what is something that I'm doing on a regular basis, and when I do it, I look at it and go, that's not me. Because you know what it would be a great discussion? What fear is driving that? Because I am afraid of something. And you can't just look at fear and go, go away fear. The way you drive out bad fear is what? A more dominant fear takeover. And it better be the fear of someone or something big. There is no bigger one than the fear of the Lord. But the last one is this. You know, Jake prayed... Something that we try to pray on a regular basis for revival. Not a revival meeting, but a work of the Spirit. Unscheduled, unmanufacturable, to bring people to Himself and to renew people who know Him already. Have you ever prayed that Greenville would have the fear of the Lord? I haven't much at all. Besides praying for ourselves, for each other, we are priests. God's people are priests. A way that we can be priests to the downtown and to Greenville is to pray that God would bring about, that He would give us the fear of Him. And in so doing, He would topple our bad fears. So let's pray that. Let's pray together. Father, we don't tell you anything that you don't know. We're afraid about money. We're afraid about family. We're afraid about work. We're afraid about our bodies. We're afraid about our feelings. We're afraid about the future. And so much more. We pray that you would show us Christ as he is. Ascended, glorified, exalted coming again to judge the living and the dead, and Savior of sinners, welcomer of sinners, the risen Son of God. We pray that your grace in our lives and the lives of our city, hearts of our city, that your grace would teach us how to fear, and then your grace would relieve our fears, our bad fears. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.